Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. And we are going to do a recap. Museum recap. For further thoughts, maybe not a recap. I don't know. Post-game wrap-up, Danny. Post-game wrap-up. Oh, you even told me beforehand and I messed it up. (laughs) So we had Ian on last week and uh, he posted his video and there's a lot of comments. Uh, Mostly positive, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's actually... For the reputation that YouTube comments have, it's by and large a very interesting discussion. And there's like 1,300 of them. So it's a pretty, a lot of people engage with it. And um, some of them left some very thoughtful and interesting comments. A few of them were. I stopped looking after the first day because there were so many and I was just like, I'm overwhelmed. Um, I just went back to double check this morning and saw the 1,300. That's crazy. We're we're never going to be that popular. But last week's chat was really fun and we acknowledge and apologize in advance that you know we got so passionate that we spoke over ian a lot but we did and it sounded worse i think in podcast only form because you couldn't see us like talking and like pausing but yeah and listening to it before it went live i was like oh we we cut him off a ton we're like the rudest we're the rudest, but you're right. Like if you watch the video version, like we're not actually cutting them off. It's just that awkward moment in Zoom where everyone's like, bleh, bleh, I wanna talk now. Um, but um, as a result, we've gotten some, you know, comments on our stuff and on Ian's stuff um, about things we didn't talk about. And, you know, as I you know, said, we couldn't possibly have talked about everything uh, or it would have been several hours. And, you know, I'm pretty sure, at least I don't wanna listen to that. So we decided to do a post game wrap up and discuss we talked a lot about bureaucracy and we talked about the state of the museum historically and the state of the museum today. So we thought we'd take some of the things that people wanted us to talk about and talk about the future of museums. Museums 2.0. Isn't that what space museums is a museum 2.0. That was like a big, like, cool. Yeah, that was a big, I just, I pushed that out of my mind until you just brought it back up. I brought it back. I think we're to like museum 3.0 though. It's it's a it's we're a sleeper. We're at the we're at the. <laughs> um, so so yeah. So we talked a lot about like our gripes with museums, and trust us, we didn't scratch the surface because we still have things. Um, but we figured we'd talk a little bit more about kind of visitorship and who comes to museums and how museums can stay relevant. Uh, and also the limitations that we have in trying to be relevant. Cause I feel like the word relevant, like automatically makes you irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. It, it's one of those words. So there are keywords within the museum field that have been like so overused in the last few years that so relevant is one of them or relevancy is one of them. Um, there's edutainment, which was probably that was overused years ago. And we um, talked about that. I feel like edutainment was like a 90s, early 2000s phenomenon, but it just became a phenomenon in Cody because Wyoming is always behind on trends. Right, right. And and to some extent, like the comparable thing is like the business world's obsession with the use of synergy for a while, like in that meme. Um, but yeah, there's these ideas that become really popular in the museum and like we get so focused on them it's almost like we get really focused on those and we forget the basics of like doing museums right as how i kind of feel it happens like or uh, relevancy 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 and so like we're trying to do all these things to be hip and cool and and it's like oh yeah we have artifacts too 
Yeah. Um, and so the, the one thing, you know, that is the acknowledgement that museum visitors, museum visitors, sorry, I got too excited on that term. Museum visitors are changing. So it's not just the old gun guy, you know, dragging his wife to the gun museum. I mean, we saw um, a statistical shift uh, based on kind of postmortem survey work when we reopened the museum that the museum is now slanting younger not like 20 years younger, but younger. And there are, and there's a more diversity in, you know, men versus women coming into the museum. So we saw that our work, you know, didn't alienate the old regime of gun people that come to museums or visitors in general, but it also is encouraging, you know, newer people to come. And that's awesome. But there's also a lot of limitations that come with that. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of that? Well, yeah. And I think too, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a drastic shift, like, to most of our terms, like we still get lots of the visitors you would expect at a museum. But from a, like a statistician's perspective, you know, it takes a big change to move the needle a couple points. Um, and we saw that move. And so I think statistically, it, it's a pretty significant shift. Um, but of course, as you said, it, there, it's not like there's a totally new audience as well. Yeah. So it, it's hard to be balanced about that, but museums are obsessed with how do we attract a younger generation, a younger audience. That's like the big driver of like museums trying to figure themselves out right now. And in some ways that's a positive because we always need to be like broadening our audience. I think that's important, but in some ways it's, it's this obsession that, you know, I, we're weird because in our twenties, we liked museums and like in our teenage years, we probably liked museums and we liked history, but that demographic by and large, it takes a little bit of time for people to get there. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like we're trying to go after a demographic that's not natural, naturally necessarily inclined. You know, people become more interested in history generally as they ah, phone call, uh, people become more interested in history generally as they get older. And I think it's hard to force people like we want this younger demographic. We can't like go out and kidnap them and bring them into the museum. So what are our other options? So basically what Danny's saying is the museum world are the boomers of historical relevancy. Yes, that is, that is even museums that think they're super woke are still the boomers of the historical <laughs> relevancy world because there's so many other ways, which we talked about and Ian talked about, about consuming, you know, material. So you can watch YouTube videos from Ian or see an arsenal, you know, you can read blogs, you can read Wikipedia, which, you know, I'm in agreement with our colleague, Ben Nicholson, you know, what? <laughs> there's some good stuff on Wikipedia. Vetting problems, of course, but you know, it's, it's a good place to go and get you know, your basic list, you know, your basic knowledge, um, just back it up with something, you know, then there's television. I mean, there's so many quote unquote history shows and, you know, people don't realize that TV still has to entertain and that, you know, in order to smoosh everything into a half hour or, you know, an hour long show, you can't tell everything, you know, like you really can't tell in museums either, but, um, you know, but you could maybe get in a book. Um, so like, we're kind of the boomers of all of the options that are out there. But I think I want to make, um, 
you know, kind of a statement that goes into something that we get asked a ton, which is not that simple of a thing, um, which is the fact that older people tend to bring younger people to museums and younger people, those younger people, so we're, I'm thinking more like kids, teenagers, they tend to bring their kids or their grandkids to museums. And that does instill, you know, a love of those things to some people. So a lot of people that don't necessarily work in the museum field, uh, you know, but also, but recognize that this changing demographic is a potential you know, visitor pool in 10, 15 years is the fact that they'll be like, well, kids like video games. So how can you make your museum like a video game or not even just like a video game, but like, how can you make video games relevant, you know, to the museum experience? So they can go, oh, that's the gun that I saw in Battlefield 1. Um, but it comes down to the, like, we're such boomers because it's like, how do we relate to like, I peaked at Nintendo 64, Danny. You're the only one that I know that plays real video games. And so like me being like, I acknowledge that the children, they like the video games. I mean, like I sound ridiculous and I promise I'm not alone in the field. So like we have this knowledge that there's these people, but like, I'm also not gonna bring a 14 year old in, although some places do in the CFM, not the CFM, but the center does have a, a youth advisory board. But like, I'm not gonna let a 14 year old also tell me exactly what I need to do in my museum. Yeah, and you know, the the extreme end of this is I've heard from museum professionals like, oh, I have a nephew that's a teenager. I'll walk with them through the galleries and they tell me what they would like to see. And that- Sorry, I'm laughing for, because that was a specific reference to somebody, but we won't say who. I've heard it more than once. Like it, it's happened it most recently specific. with one, one, somebody specific, but- it's happened more than once and I've heard it from multiple sources. And it's this idea that like, that should drive how we engage with quote, I'm doing giant air quotes here, young people. Um, <laughs> and there, I, there's some value. Like I get where they're trying to go with this because it's like what I want to, I want to try and see this museum, this, this content through a teenager's eyes. And that hike I think has some value. The, going to the extreme though and saying you know this teenager gets to dictate some content in here or tell me what I should write on this label like that's iffier unless but you were to I do just, some type of like you know online you write your own label and we can share them you know as a growing part of the gallery like I'd be cool with that you know yeah but, like but we most, also but to be fair we have a very not tech high-tech version of that and we get follow me on snap, follow me on snap, follow yeah, me on yeah. snap. So it's a great concept of letting them be involved, but like um, <laughs> the, we get way the, more kids writing into like our military history tent where they're supposed to be telling a veteran story that says, follow me on Snapchat. And it's, like, I mean, it's yeah. so regular, it's not even funny. <laughs> yeah, we have a compendium of Snapchats <laughs> that is scary. I shouldn't, I shouldn't know this many Snapchat usernames. I don't um, even have a Snapchat because I don't understand it. What's the best one? Oh, I, look I'd at have them to because it just feels wrong. I don't want to look at them. Yeah. Like, yeah, not... no, I mean name wise. Like, what's the best oh, name? I don't even because no. you have okay. it all in your memory. So one, I'm like, what? I don't remember any of the names specifically. And two, I'm not giving them a shout out on our podcast <laughs> for our ten listeners, Camila. They gotta grow that organically, organically. <laughs> What about, have you guys ever gone in, um, this is going to make me sound old because I can't remember the name of it right now, the uh, 
Chinese one or yeah, I think it's TikTok. Chinese. Yeah, TikTok. Oh, I was like Chinese Snapchat. Like what? <laughs> TikTok. Is TikTok Chinese? I have no idea. I think it oh. is. It's gonna make me sound really dumb, but we I don't think we've gotten very many TikTok handles. We have gotten um, a bunch of we Snapchat was big the year we opened, TikTok, so. but it just feels like a lot of work. Yeah, um, I don't understand TikTok. Anyways, anyway. go on. Sorry. So yeah, in theory, it's like this really great idea where we get input from a, a, an entire new audience, a different generation, and see the museum through new eyes. That's a really good idea. In practical, you know, in practical terms, it doesn't it doesn't work the way we intend, and that's true for lots of parts of life. But it's true for this too. And so we end up with stupid comments. We end up with you know social media shout outs and all kinds of things. And it sort of falls apart in practice. I think there are really cool facets of it that we could do, but yeah, it just, it just falls apart. And going back to the whole video game thing, like this is one I'm particularly intrigued by video games and historical content and the way that firearms are represented in video games. It's absolutely fascinating. I think it's, um, is it relevant, it's how Danny? an entire new, what? Is it relevant? It's, uh, I guess. <laughs> Deep sigh, I guess. Um, it's, it's creating a new generation of interest. You know, it's, what I always say is it's doing for firearms what the old Western did a generation ago. So prefaced with my really passionate topic about, like, opinion about this is the fact that it's really, really difficult to make the transition in a meaningful way into the museum. And the field hasn't figured it out, like at all. One of the paths that museums have tried to take is to say, oh, well, all right, we'll put some sort of game in the museum, whether we do it through an app, whether we do it through a kiosk, whatever, we'll put some game in the museum. To me, that always falls apart in implementation because we can't afford to compete with the quality of games that are being put out that, you know, so if you're playing Battlefield one, since Ashley already mentioned that one or Red Dead or something like that, Call of Duty, one of the big titles, those have huge budgets, huge production staff, like they're top tier. And that's what really people are comparing us to. And then you go into a museum and we have like our little rinky dink version that we could put together with 50 grand from, you know, some grant we got and it just never quite holds up. So that's where I see that approach falling apart. We've also tried, you know, we've sort of tried the approach of like getting a hold of these large companies that do historical games in historical settings and then trying to like bring them into the museum, whether it's a sponsor or something like that. The problem there is they don't need museums to be relevant. They don't need museums to be interesting to their audience. It doesn't add a lot of value to them and they get a lot of noise their way anyway. So they don't pick up the phone, don't answer the email, you know, it's really hard to get in touch with them. Now, there are some smaller studios that probably will be able to, you know, get a hold of us or us get a hold of them. And there's some things we could do there. But those have been the two approaches that people have seemed to try in my experience, and neither one really goes anywhere. I don't know if, if you see something different in that, actually, but that's my experience. And yeah, and I mean, we've talked about, um, 
online or doing stuff like a tour once you get to the museum that's like if you're interested in video games like here's blah you know like here's something that like where you can go and identify all the guns from certain things and i mean honestly i know that's like an old school mentality on like you know video games but it's probably your most en <laughs> engaging um you know uh thing that somebody can do and the, and the research has shown at least in the museum world that when people do come to a museum they don't want to be on their phone the whole time you know they want to touch other things they want to touch you know interactives um obviously they're not allowed to touch the artifacts but they want to get hands on with the history and they want to see the stuff because they're inundated by the online community so so much in that respect and so like sometimes it may seem silly and, and, and fuddy-duddy to say i'm going to give you this brochure that says you know find you know a gun from battlefield one it's like a the passport thing in the draper i mean it's super old school where you stamp something down but like everybody uses it you know even adults right. when they come in the draper and and so there's it's, ways to i think engage people that way but before i just because uh, i'm going to forget this because i forgot it when i was first talking the other thing that i and i'm going to sound like a real fud here for a second I am constantly shocked at, and, and this is not, and let me make, let me preface this. I am not saying that violent video games make people violent. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, but I am gonna say that for a general purpose audience, I was kind of surprised when we did the test run of Battlefield 1 at how graphic it was, you know? And I had a moment being like, oh my God, they're shooting people and we're gonna have this on an online conference, you know? Because we work so hard to, to talk about reality, um, you know? But it is pretty, like, if you're not used to it, like, it is pretty jarring um, to see that. And, and maybe people need to see that, I don't know, but like, when I, when I saw Battlefield 1, I was like, you know, and, and, and granted, like, I could also go back in my history of the first time I saw, um, ooh, what Grand Theft Auto, and like, we're not even going there, but I was like, <laughs> I was traumatized. I was like, what do you mean kids play this? Like, this is horrible. And I remember, like, I played it the first time, um, but like, I can't figure out the two joysticks. So like, I either like, spin around in a circle looking up or I run with my head down the whole time. But like my friend was like, Ashley, like you have to shoot people or like, you know, you have to beat these people up. So what I did the whole time was I just drove my car because I didn't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> like I just drove the car like the whole time because I was just like, oh my God, like, oh my God, like the whole time. So I know it's funny of me and I'm not, like I said, I do not subscribe to the whole video games make people violent. I think that if you're maybe inherently violent, maybe they don't help, but like, you know, obviously that's not a thing because if it were like, there would be a lot more people going out and doing stuff. So I don't mean it in that respect, but the museum is supposed to be for all ages and <clears throat> right. While the Cody Fires Museum doesn't shy away from uncomfortable topics, that's kind of an in-your-face thing to see. So it would have to be carefully curated to be relevant. Right. It's one thing to have like a a difficult topic on a label somewhere where a family can have like a chance to talk it out, maybe. Um, but just like running on a screen where everybody can see it and like the kid can be off by themselves. I mean, to get straight to the point, and first off, let's be clear. We've just discovered two things. One, Ashley is only adding to her old man credentials. And two, Ashley's also probably the most peaceful player of GTA <laughs> that has ever existed. <laughs> I can't do it, man. I can't do it. It's too hard. So I want to yeah. go and give the ladies money to like make their <laughs> life better. Like <laughs> Oh man. Um 
before we go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it brings in this question of like, the video games do depict violence. So, so in that conference setting where we show Battlefield 1, that's a very controlled setting, a curated setting, if you will, where we can talk about it and talk through it. If I were to put that clip of us talking about it in a, what is really a very academic way, you know, I mean, we were goofing off a little bit, but there was like, there was some academic content there as academic as video games get. Well, maybe not as so, but I caveat things too much anyways. Um, if I put that clip in the museum, I would have so many angry board members calling us. Yeah. We had, you know, we talked about the Burton. That was, you know, we we have that in our collection. It's a it's a cool thing that they featured it in game. We talked about using it, talked about its mischaracterizations, what it got right, what it, what's wrong. That clip in the museum somewhere, or even online. We put the we did a museum minute with Camila about the Burton. That went up on the center's webpage. We got angry phone calls that we would show, quote unquote, an assault rifle on our website because that'll discourage families from visiting. So imagine then if that kind of complaint is extrapolated to us putting the clip of us playing Battlefield in the museum somewhere. And, and like, I, it's important to point out if we're getting the complaint, imagine a museum that doesn't have, you right. know, a focused and, fire. And this goes into, and it, it gets back to the question too of like, we do what Ashley said, we have to think of our entire audience. And most of our listeners would be really comfortable if, you know, Battlefield was depicted in the museum, if you could play the game in the museum. This is assuming, of course, that we got the license and ability to do this, which is a gigantic if. But assuming that most of our listeners, I'm assuming, would be comfortable with that idea. Not all of our visitors would. And we have to, you know, we say all the time, this is a museum for absolutely anybody to come learn about guns, comfortable, uncomfortable, whatever it is. And we have to think about all those people. So yeah, it's, it's a really difficult question and there's some really potentially cool answers, but there's some big asterisks to go with them. Well, and I think that, and this is me just, you know, being an angry old man, but I think what we did in the new museum was probably the best example of a way to incorporate a game into the museum, which is our simulators. I mean, those things are super popular, you know, mm -hmm. and they're, and, and we haven't gotten, you know, you could say like, oh my gosh, you have a, you know, a semi-automatic handgun in the front of the museum that, you know, anybody can go up and use, um, you know, but it's such, it, you know, we, we made sure that it was very like, here's target shooting and this is what the sport mm -hmm. is, um, you know, the, you know, and then we were very careful when we put the M2 machine gun into the gallery, in the military gallery that like we had a mural, you know, that there weren't people in front of it, you know, we, we, you know, we're not trying to whitewash, but at the same time, we're trying to be respectful. Um, and so like we put those games, like to me, that's a video game. I mean, I don't like, we have big buck hunter in the RV garage. That's, a, I mean, that, oh, that's an arcade game. Sorry. Um, I'm sure that's a different categorization, but like, you know, it's a game nonetheless with a computer screen where you're interacting and we have uh, three of those plus the, you know, pneumatic M2 that you can interact with and people love it, you know, and you're not getting complaints for the most part. I don't think we've really gotten complaints about like, No, oh, I, I haven't heard any negative people. I mean, people love to go up and try it and you can stand up there and watch people. You like, like clearly have no idea how to hold a gun, have never handled a gun, or at least not extensively in any way. And they go up there, some of them read the instructions, um, but they try it out and they, they all seem to walk away with 
a positive experience from that. And we've had almost no, I don't know of any complaints directly about the simulators. Yeah. And I mean, if there are, you know, they don't always trickle down to us, but you know, and there were options, you know, this goes back to careful curation and a consideration of your whole audience. When I went to laser shot, I played a game where I was doing a drug bust in a meth house, you know, and they were like, and while the characters weren't necessarily whole people, like they were still kind of target shaped, they were like shaking because they were like tweaking, you know, and I'm like, yeah, no, this ain't going into our museum. So like, you know, is it, you know, we thought very long and hard about how we can incorporate this so that, you know, we're still acknowledging things and we're still talking about them, but we're not like, you know, giving a kid an option to go as a cop into a meth lab and break it up. You like you know there's a lot of thought that goes into it um i want to shift gears a little bit before yeah. we do our exercise because i want to talk about something else that gets brought up a lot um and we are kind of critical of it um and we want to explain why and that's so like there aren't a lot of museum professionals who are trained in firearms um and usually you get one or the other and there are amazing cases where like people who aren't don't come from the museum world but no firearms end up being you know top of their field top notch um, and it happens a lot, you know, so it's, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Um, but as a museum consultant, you know, oftentimes when I go into a museum that has a firearms collection, but their mission is not just firearms, they go, oh, you know, Timmy in janitorial, you know, he likes guns. So we just go to him when we've got gun questions. So Timmy from janitorial may be like, retired law enforcement, Dan Brumley <laughs> from our, you know, museum. And he might be friggin' awesome. But at the same time, if you, like, we know a lot about guns. And so, you know, when we bring people in that have backgrounds in law enforcement or military, like we can sniff out, you know, who knows what, because just because someone has a background doesn't mean that they're, you know, actually knowledgeable in the subject matter. Um, you know, like the joke about, you know, military, a lot of military guys not knowing how to shoot a handgun uh, that my ex-boyfriend when he was in the military used to always tell me about, you know, so like, you know, you can't guarantee that just because someone was a part of something that they've got the concept of context and, and all the things, um, you know, they, they share value for sure in their personal experiences, but then it doesn't always translate to an overall museum purpose. Um, and so imagine being a museum professional that knows nothing and can't smell out if somebody actually knows what they're talking about or not, you know, it can go really, you know, they can lock into a really good person or they could just be giving all kinds of inaccurate information. And that's dangerous because it's safety information, it's legal information. Like I don't even give legal advice when I do museum workshops, you know? I'm like, here are the laws and talk to a lawyer. You know, like we don't even give legal advice because it's so complicated. And so I, I always like to bring that up because everyone thinks that that's a blanket fix to not having a, a pointed gun person in your collection. And it can be, but it also, can be really bad and it can be i mean like hell when the museum first opened you know back in the day and they just recruited gun people to like put gun like to coat all of the firearms and gun oil like you know which which is fine for a gun but not for necessarily an artifact and so like and that was at the advice of these gun people and so you know there's even things like that that might be good for the gun but might not be good for the gun as artifact and so if you don't have a vetting process to know if that person knows what they're talking about, you could be in a pretty bad situation. And we have had to, on multiple occasions in the CFM, had to literally let people go 
from being volunteers because of perpetuating myths, perpetuating stereotypes, you know, talking down to people, um, being unsafe, you know, so it's not like, you know, we're immune to it. Do do y'all even know how awkward it is to fire a volunteer who wants to work for free for you? (laughs) It's the most uncomfortable thing. <clears throat> yeah, and and so the fact that it's happened to us, you know, and we were able to sniff it out. Imagine when you can't sniff it out. So, like, I have to say a million times over, I'm not saying that this can't turn out well because we have a curatorial assistant, Dan Brumley, who's retired law enforcement, who is like literally our go-to guy for everything, you know. But yeah. he also humbles himself to the material, right. and that's something that right. we don't always see. <laughs> well, and to maybe put it in perspective, like. Just my personal experiences walking into a lot of museums, and actually, since you you consult way more than I do, you probably see this too. But you go into a museum, and for our listeners, think about museums you've visited where the information is wrong, and they're not a dedicated firearms museum. You see a firearm, its label's wrong. That museum probably handed that project off to a impassioned staffer that wasn't necessarily necessarily curatorial or a volunteer. And we see catalog records all the time. It's like, all right, where did this catalog record come from? Well, somebody volunteered their time to do this. And we appreciate it, but they got it totally wrong. And that happens really frequently. And to, we're being a little bit hard on volunteers because we have several very good ones here that we're- Oh like, my God, really yeah, we have. have so many good volunteers. But I've seen it go wrong in a lot of ways. And you know, I did that podcast with Osias and then talked about it with Ian about- Larry Wilson, he got his way. The other thing we have to be careful of, Larry Wilson got in by volunteering at museums. Like that's how he became trusted. So there's that whole- You probably have to give the 30 second synopsis on who that is. The largest theft of museum firearms in history. R.L. Wilson. Was perpetuated, uh, that's the wrong word for that. Perpetrated, there we go. (laughs) Perpetrated by R.L. Wilson. So- there's that thing that we have to be cautious about. There's a knowledge level that we have to be cautious about. And the only way I can think to put this in frame of reference is for our listeners. Imagine when you go to a gun store, if you consider yourself knowledgeable about historic firearms or firearms at all, and think of all the times you've heard someone behind the counter or somebody walk into the store that is like a regular customer or just trying to figure out what they want. And they say something about guns and you instantly know it's wrong. I believe the internet term is FUD lore. But like, (laughs) think of all the times you've heard just total misinformation or just total BS at the range, at the gun shop, talking amongst friends that like guns. Think about all that. And then imagine giving that sort of carte blanche to fill in the blanks for a museum that doesn't know a lot about guns. Because that's what you're asking. You know, like when you talk about that volunteer solution, that's kind of the risk you run. And, you know, a lot of times people that think they know a lot about guns can be very prideful about it, you know, and it's really hard to like correct them on it. Um, so there's a lot of pitfalls. Like I said, we've been very fortunate to have some amazing volunteers, have an amazing curatorial system. But for the museum people that don't know guns that well, how do they navigate it? And it's, it's a total minefield. Yeah, I mean, I... I met good people along the way in my consulting. And then I've, you know, met people that like, when they made me sit down with their person, I did, they just talk over me the whole time, (laughs) you know, and that person's not a trained, you know, anything. 
And so like, it, like I said, it's a crapshoot. And so having that vetting process, you know, is so important. And if you don't know how to vet that person, then, you know, you're not, you're not going to know and you could be perpetuating stuff or just assuming things. And, and that might just be, you know, as simple as misinformation, but it could be as complicated as like your legal standing <laughs> with firearms. Right. Um, you know, I've actually had uh, people uh, in the past that um, used to help with museum FFL stuff. Um, like, you know, 20 years ago, and I heard out of their mouths, we'll just form tenant to a museum. And like that, and we've talked about that before, unless it's a government museum, you can't do that. You know, but it used to be this like wink, wink, not, not understood thing that was allowed in museums. And so to hear someone that literally gets paid to do this and to help with this, say that, you know, and he hadn't done it in a while, but you know, the fact that he's still off of that mentality, I was like, Ah, you know, so like even people that have been doing it for a long time, you know, that's the other pitfall of like, you've been doing it so long, you don't even realize that it's not okay anymore. <laughs> um, right. So it, it's problematic, but we're, you know, we feel very, I feel very negative, Nancy. So let's be even more negative and let's do our exercise, Danny. Well, yeah, we've talked a long time about like video games. We talked a long time about volunteering, which are two of the big ones that people come up with as solutions for things. Yeah. I think they come up with them solutions and so, Ashley, I think you get to be the positive one in this. I'm going to be the naysayer. So, because I'm always pessimistic. So, like, right. exercise. And the volunteering that. one, that's one that we get approached. That's one people talk about sort of across the board. And there's a lot of people willing to volunteer for museums, which we appreciate. Um, and so people will be like, oh, you need photography, volunteer. You need cataloging, volunteer. You need this, volunteer. And I get it all. But at the same time, just, you know, don't say you're so willing to work for free near my boss because I need a job. Oh, yeah. And as a side note, um, I have actually had conversations with people who wanted to volunteer and they're like, I just want to do like whatever you need, whatever you need. So I provide them with a list of things that I need and they just are like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I want to do this. And I'm like, surprisingly, we don't need you to take apart every gun in the collection. Cause that's what they're saying. I want to come into the collection and like go in the back and just take it apart and play with it. Yeah. No, I need somebody to like actually do take what we need. Take photos of it, you know. Index lists of serial numbers and like yeah. mind-numbingly boring stuff. Yeah. But, so okay, yeah. let's do our experiment. Um, I'm gonna say, and this is not like we're obviously not making fun of anybody like online. We're more making fun of what museum people say, <laughs> and then like you know ideas museum people have when they haven't thought it through. Uh, okay. So, hey, Danny, so I encountered this really cool technology. It's called augmented reality. And I think it would be super cool if we could use augmented reality in the gallery so that people could see, you know, a, a world exhibit or an exhibition, you know, World's Fair gun on display in the World's Fair, or even just to be able to see the gun, you know, come out, spin around and fire. That wouldn't it be so cool. That would be amazing. But we don't have a staff photographer. We don't have photography of the object. We don't have the equipment to do 360 photography of the object or the ability to 3D render the action and other parts moving and firing. And we don't have the funding to hire an augmented reality company to come do it all for us because it's going to cost like 30 grand. And then there's going to be maintenance and hardware on top of that. So cool idea. There's a lot of hurdles. 
Uh, here's one that's a little bit of a diss on us. Oh my God, Danny, wouldn't it be so cool if there were QR codes on all the labels so people could pull up the records and read more about the guns? It's like, this is a total burn against us. <laughs> It would be it would be super cool. Um, <laughs> all of our records would have to be up to date. Uh, we'd need photography for everything. We'd need a way to tie our database to the location. Our collection software would have to work like it's supposed to, and everybody would have to have a QR reader. And we have barcodes, but we can't actually do it. We have a barcode. Uh, let me think of another one. Let me think of another one. Oh, so Danny, I think that the videos you do on Facebook are so great. But hey, the quality of the sound and the lighting is not great. So why don't you, you know, do a video every day, but improve? You know, we can get, we can send you lights. You know, if that if that'll make things better. Um, but I would really like to see a daily video um, about an artifact. No big deal. You don't have to edit it, but like make sure that the sound quality is is good enough so that people don't complain and you know, all that stuff. <laughs> he's like dying I, I hate that you I hate and love that you picked this one <laughs> so for those listening our listeners um we planned to do this exercise but Ashley did not tell me any of the things she was going to bring up I'm and... literally making them up as we go to <laughs> <sighs> oh I'm so angry right now um <laughs> this is like bring back like bad memories um so we need a camera, like a quality camera. We need lighting, we need sound equipment. We need a way to get it all to the object or get the object to a dedicated studio space that isn't interrupted by our really loud HVAC systems. We, if we try and do them quick and unedited, we go stand in the galleries and do it on our phone. Phones have terrible audio and tend to pick up every little background noise or we'll get interrupted by visitors. And despite what you say about not needing to edit a video, if I just put them up unedited, you're not going to like them because I can do tweaks to the light. I can do tweaks to the audio. And it takes usually a couple takes to do a good video and to get the content right. So me producing a short video from the museum galleries is like a two hour process. At least. At least. And for me to take that time and to do that every day, on top of all my other duties, like I would have to forsake something else. And then I would love to do it. Like, to be honest, I, I really enjoy doing videos, but then other staff start to get angry at me. And then my bosses get angry at me because I'm not doing other work. But so, then they're also angry at you because you're not putting out a new video every day. So did you mention, I, I, I my internet was a little spotty there for a second. Did you mention that like, what you would really need is a dedicated staff member whose job it was to do all that. I mean, when it gets down to it, yeah, we'd need probably some, at least some kind of like semi-dedicated staff. Cause when it was you, Dan and I here every day, I kind of ended up being that person that was like, Hey, let's do a video today. Let's talk about this. And I'd be like, I'll handle. I didn't shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I'd be like, I didn't shower. Come on, let's do it tomorrow. Um, but that was, you know, I had less administrative things to do. 
as assistant curators. So then, I, you know, I could dedicate more time to that. But even then, it was really hard to maintain a schedule. And, you know, it was up to me to like learn the software on the fly. We were fortunate that we had some supply money that could go to equipment. We probably invested like, I don't know, five or six grand in equipment just to do videos over the course of the last few years. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but we're one of the most prominent firearms museums in the country. And we had to like scrimp and save to get that money to put together to do a video setup. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, so this is just a little like break from our little exercise. So if you follow us on social media, please, please, please don't comment. Well, you know, your lighting could be better. I, you know, the sound could be better um, because it kills Danny inside a little bit more every time. Like, we know it could be better. Yeah, we're all we're working with what we got here. <laughs> yeah, We're not Discovery Channel, okay? Yeah. Uh, okay, let me think of another one. I'll do one more. Um, that turned to... into more of a tangent than I expected. Yeah, sorry. Um, let me think of one more, one more. I'm trying to think of a good idea everybody has. Hmm. Oh. Funding? I don't know. Oh, okay. Now I got to do two. Uh, so one more uh, or two more. Okay. So I'm going to do the funding one last, but um, oh my gosh, Danny. So I have this great way to engage with our audience. We're going to let them write labels that we can then put up. We already talked about this. So to some extent, but we did. Our visitors can't see what I'm doing, but I'm like, rubbing my face in angst. Um, that's a really great idea and our visitors would love it. Who's going to moderate it? What are our moderation standards going to be? Are we going to vet the content for accuracy or are we just putting it up? How do we constantly change out the labels? How do we put up, decide which ones are acceptable for display. I guess that goes back to moderation. Who's going to absorb the printing costs of constantly printing new labels? There's so many questions and ultimately, who, how do we even know that these visitors are right about anything? If do we want accuracy on the labels or do we want like just a, the pure visitor experience? Cause if we go for the pure visitor experience where they get to put up a label, that's great. They'll have a ton of fun. Pretty soon, our labels will be meaningless. Um, okay, so there are so many funding ones in my brain right now. Because <laughs> um, it could go one of two ways. Um, okay, now I'm just going to split it into a two-part question. Um, well, I guess we, we kind of covered the one, like the funding one question, which can kind of go into all of these is, wouldn't it be great if you could get better equipment and do all the, you know, and have all the nice things and that all comes back down to, yes, that costs money. Who's going to give us that money? So I'm going to do a bigger question of, Hey, Danny, I'm a development officer and I've got this guy, his name is Clyde and he wants to give his entire collection in its entirety to you guys, but you can't break it up. And also he'll give you $10,000, but you can't break up his collection. And he only wants that to go to interpretation of Winchester 22 rib fires. Sidebar, that just made me think of another really fun question. Um, <laughs> also, that's not a real person. 
It was an amalgamation of like several real people. <laughs> Many people are amalgamated into that, into Clyde. Um, Clyde should just be our like name for all problem people we ever have to deal with now. Um, that's really great. I'm really glad he likes the museum and wants to give us his collection. However, we can't display all of it all the time. So we already have duplicates of most of what he's offered us. $10,000 doesn't begin to cover the cost of caring for this collection. And we already do interpretation of Winchester 22s. And if I can't use that money for anything else, it's just going to sit in a really obscure fund that doesn't help me do any of my other work that we need to do. You know, because he, because he used really specific language on his offer, I can't, I can't print labels for those 22s. I can't do the research. I can't use that for a different exhibit. So now I'm stuck with $10,000 I can't use and a collection that includes lots of duplicates and I just have to find space to store all those duplicates and sit on them and that takes up space that then I can't store other good artifacts with and I have to care for and maintain those artifacts. Um, and I'm going to add one more thing since I was really involved in the fundraising of the renovation. We don't mix guns and money. Um, so if you want to give us guns, great. If you want to give us money, great. But we consider those to be two separate things. Um, so, you know, you, you can give us one, other, or both, but we categorize them in, in curatorial as two separate types of gifts. And so we don't like the idea of you gave us money so that we take your collection, blah, blah, blah. So we try to keep that, um, separate as much as possible. And that also gets into a question of like, yeah, we keep it separate as much as possible. And there's always the joke. I heard this joke all the time is like, oh, what's the collection worth? We don't talk about value. Well, everything's got a price. What is worth? We don't talk about value. Well, if somebody came in and like offered you a million dollars, you'd sell. Sorry. We do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you like people make the jokes. Gun guys love, love to make that joke and love to tell us, you know, that, oh yeah, well you would. Well, thank you for telling me to my face that you don't think I have any integrity and that I am in fact a liar because I just told you the opposite. Like, I love that particular aspect of that. But like, to get back to the question, those, those, if you offer us guns and money at the same time, we do our best. The money offer goes to our development office. The firearms offer comes to us. It goes to a collections we, committee now. So right now to our collections committee. And we evaluate that collection on the merits of the collection and does it add to our interpretive abilities here? The money, if you give that, that's great. And there's been really famous cases in the past where this has not been done and they come up in museum ethics classes, but our highest calling in this instance is to do our best to separate these two and consider the objects without the money. And when you put all these restrictions on your gift, like, all right, I want to give you these guns, but you can't ever sell them. Okay. You're worried that the collection will get broken up. I get that. A bunch of them are going to sit in storage. That makes it really hard for me to work with the collection. And I don't really want to sell them, but if you come, they, you know, a really popular one for a while was this percentage of the collection has to be on display. That's a super tough ask. And it has to be on display all the time. Well, what does all the time mean? Does that mean we're allowed to take it off to clean it, care for it? 
does it mean we're allowed to rotate in other exhibits because then we lose floor space? Does it mean literally all the time, nothing? And that's impossible to work with. So we basically have quit taking donations with restrictions is the end game of that. Yeah, it's just too hard. And it's detrimental to the collections in the long run to require to be displayed at all times. We had that problem with the these giant paintings um, when we redid the Cody Firearms Museum that they had a stipulation that they were to be on display at all times, which first off, horrible for paintings. And second off, they were so huge. Where the heck were we going to put them? And then, you know, when we actually took them off display, there were some pretty scary things that we found from where they were. Um, they weren't damaged, you know, luckily, but I mean, there were some scary things that we found when we lifted them up off the wall. And so, you know, we ended up going back to the people who originally donated it because we had the ability, which is not always the case, uh, and asked for a change in the agreement. And they, they said, yes. Um, but that's that was a company and not an individual, which is even harder. Um, so yeah, so I think we should probably wrap up because we've been talking for a long time. But um, do you have any parting thoughts? Because I feel like Camila, did we just sound like we're just so jaded and can't like we we're just the can't most the on our high horse jaded jerks ever? Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we really attacked a lot of people today, but we didn't mean to. We're just trying to point out like. You know, the fact that a lot of people have a lot of really good ideas um, and some of them we never thought of and some of them we've tried, you know, and so like the acknowledgement that like we always want people to suggest things to us because that's super valuable because it will come a day when we'll be like, oh, crap. Yeah, no, that would make sense. Let's do that. But also to respect that, like, yeah, there are some like people who love the bureaucracy um, in the museum world, but there are some of us that just are trying to do our best. And we thought of those things, we've put them through, we've been denied, <laughs> you know, and so we're just trying to do what we can do and do the best job at it. I mean, I think the, the what got us down this road and why we wanted to do a wrap up episode. So one, I hope you're not tired of listening to us talk about museums because obviously- We'll get back to guns next week. What's that? We can get back to guns next week. Yeah, we'll get back to guns next week. I hope you're okay with that because we have a lot to say about this. And it's just, we've we've received a lot of feedback. So we wanted to kind of address some of the feedback. And I think, as Ashley said, you know, we don't want to be jaded jerks about this. But a lot of times we get ideas that run the gamut from really, really, really terrible to like really awesome things we've never thought about. And a lot of stuff in the middle. I, this is an anecdote that I probably shouldn't share, but I'll do it anyway. One time, a guy came into the museum and he had this like idea about how we should light our cases. I was trying to be really, really polite and like listen to him, but it was a, you know it was before we did the renovation. We didn't we don't have the money to go back and relight all our cases and all this stuff. And I was really trying, but I failed epically because he just looked at me and goes, "You're not going to do any of this, are you?" I was like, "Ah, uh, oops." <laughs> So I felt really bad about that. But so if you're listening, guy, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, um, we but, the same. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Danny. Well, and, and all that to say, like, we do sincerely try to like evaluate the ideas we hear about and like and take them to heart and be like, you know, hey, this is something I hadn't thought of, or this is something I did thought of maybe in a new way. But then there's a ton of stuff that we we've tried and we're working towards that people can't see. And I think that's where it becomes frustrating for us. It's like I'm trying, like, I'm really trying here. And we've tried this, we've tried this, we've tried this. And there's just, 
a lot of obstacles that I think people can't see or can't consider. And, you know, that's fair. Like if I had to go evaluate, like how a general contractor ran his business, I would probably tell him a lot of stupid things, you know, like, and I'd be like thinking I'm super original and he'd be like, yeah, I've tried it this way. It doesn't work. Um, so we try to be humble. We try to come at these with a new face, but we hear a lot of the same things over and over and we just run into the same obstacles, you know, and I think that becomes, I don't want to sound like I'm totally giving up on these things, but we spend a lot of time thinking about it. We're not just ignoring them. We are trying to consider meaningful ways to, to move the museum forward. Um, and then, you know, just kind of a last thought, you know, with a lot of what people suggest, suggest, sorry, um, is, you know, it, I hear it a lot with gun laws, you know, they, people, it, it's the Ronald Reagan quote that I can't remember for the Mulford Act. Well, if you've got, if you're an honest person, like you've got nothing to hide. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, gun laws, which we've been talking about and we'll finish up here, you know, towards the end of the month, but you know, a lot of gun laws are put in place with the assumption that everybody has good intentions. And the same thing goes for a lot of, you know, the, the suggestions that we get is the assumption is, is that everybody going into this has good intentions. Larry Wilson, for example, you know, when that's not the case uh, and not even something as sinister as that, just, you know, the, the assumption that everybody knows what they're talking about and everyone's honest about their knowledge and everybody, you know, is trying to do a good thing. And the reality of the matter is, is that not everybody has good intentions and that sucks. So. And it can range from like, the, party, it can yeah, range from the super sinister thing like R.L. Wilson, or it can, you know, it can be the mundane thing of like, you know, the workplace politics. And as frustrating it is to say, we can't really do a really cool thing because of getting certain people on board within the workplace. like y'all work in places, I assume, I assume we don't have exclusively retired listeners. Um, it's just part of life. And if we do, we're so screwed because they're going to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's just part of life. And, you know, it's, it's tough to deal with, but you have to accept the fact that Ashley and I think very similarly in a lot of ways. There's some things we differ on, but we tend to approach things the same way. Not everybody does, and not everybody approaches the same way as our listeners and our commenters. So it's it's easy for us to sit here and pontificate about what the right thing to do is, but you do have to bring everybody up to that and get everybody on with it and like build a consensus. And that that takes a lot of time and a lot of work, and it can be it can be tricky. Yeah. So I just want to say before we log off that I think every week, which we will never do because. Us, our attempts in the past to have structure to these podcasts have never worked, but we should totally have a parting shot at the end of every episode. Parting shots. Because that like also it. might make it, make us capable of ending. <laughs> Maybe. All right. Camille's just like waving a shot glass at us or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we hope that you enjoyed our post game wrap up. We'll get back to, you know, guns and regular, regularly scheduled programs next week. We'll try to be more optimistic. Uh, yeah. I think we have to do like a gun history episode next week. We've, yeah, so. we've avoided it long enough. <laughs> I know. Right. We've avoided preparation long enough. All right. Well, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks y'all. See you next time.